0: From the Center for the Study of Art and Community, this is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. Sometimes what we like to think of as the objective truth misses the mark, particularly when it comes to human learning and cooperation. Now, I'm not talking about math and chemistry here. I'm talking about the really complicated stuff that happens when we come together to tackle the hard questions I'm talking about those times when our ideas and perspectives and feelings and beliefs, all the things we bring into our problem-solving relationships with each other, don't fit into a neat little box. I'm talking about one of the 21st century's most vexing problems. If you're a listener to this podcast, it's no secret to you that my shorthand for this nexus of history and its clamorous sibling, What Happens Next?, is the story. This episode of Change the Story, Change the World examines a very specific and personal instance of how California's Arts and Corrections program endeavored to answer that question for new teaching artists coming into the program. It comes from a recently published book from New Village Press called The Book of Judith, which is an homage to the life of poet, writer, and teaching artist Judith Tannenbaum and her impact on incarcerated and marginalized students. Judith, who passed away in 2019, was deeply committed to nurturing both incarcerated writers and her fellow artists working in prison. As a mentor for what are referred to as outside artists, she believed conventional rule books and orientations provided to those artists failed to capture the complexities of working inside a prison. In response, she researched and wrote a story of a fictional prison to reveal the often upside-down reality of prison life. That work, called North Coast Correctional Facility, a novella, changed the way teaching artists were trained for what became one of the largest residential arts programs in the world. This excerpt from the Book of Judith is, with the help of a fabulous cast, my telling of the tangled, twisting, often calamitous story of its creation. The Novella Showing truth through fiction.
1: North Coast Correctional Facility, a novella. Introduction. The closest way to approximate in words what it is to be an artist coming in to teach in prison is not to list facts about the world of prison, but to try to render this world.
0: August 1989, Sacramento, California. It's a typical August hot plate of a day in Sacto, as we call it. I'm looking out of a dusty third floor office window, gazing mindlessly into a deep hole in the earth where men in hard hats are laying the foundation of another new building. Despite the heat and lack of rain, I'm thinking, man, there's a lot of sprouting up in this old town. This is the space in the past two years for our outfit, officially known as the Office of Community Resources Development. The community part of this clunky title stands for something we at the California Department of Corrections, or CDC, call outside. Outside as in the opposite of inside, which represents the concrete and razor wire clad citadels most Californians just refer to as prisons. The California Penal Code identifies these places as correctional institutions. Prisoners just call them joints. As the summer simmers into the fall of 1989, there are 17 prisons scattered up and down the Golden State, mostly in rural, out-of-sight, out-of-mind communities, but that's 17 and counting. Not long ago, CDC housed its entire central office staff in one four-story office building. But over the last few years, what some have christened California's Department of Defense has been growing like an out-of-control virus, adding the staff and offices and institutions needed to accommodate the largest and most rapid prison-building program in the history of the planet. Community Resources, as our office is called, is what some around here think of as the do-gooder unit of the expanding corrections universe. My boss, Claude Finn, is one of 10 CDC assistant directors. He oversees volunteers, chaplains, self-help programs like Alcoholics Anonymous, a few VocEd programs, and the unit I run called Arts in Corrections or AIC. If there ever were a Richter scale for corrections do-gooders, AIC would definitely be off the charts. I turn from the window to confront the overflowing message spike in the middle of my desk, hoping for some other way to start my day. My prayer is answered by the familiar ring of bureaucracy at work.
2: Jim. It's Jim. Jim. Jim Carlson
0: has been the artist facilitator at San Quentin Prison for the past four years. An artist facilitator is just that, an artist who is facilitating. In Jim's case, he facilitates the work of a dozen or so teaching artists at one of the state's two level four institutions. Now, level four is corrections jargon for what prisoners call hard time and q which was built in 1852 is as old and decrepit as it is hard which makes it even harder nevertheless since his arrival jim whose initial response to my job offer was no way has masterminded the building of an unlikely creative empire at san quentin prison fine artist in his own right jim teaches printmaking and clears the way literally For the dozens of artists who make up his crew, it's quite a show. There's a ceramics program, cranking out pots and sculptures, a music department with dozens of classes and bands of every type. There's also a theater program and all manner of painting and drawing classes and even circus arts taught by members of what else? San Francisco's famous Pickle Family Circus. Amidst all this bounty... The jewel in Q's creative pantheon is the San Quentin Writing Program, presided over by an extraordinary writer and teacher named Judith Tenenbaum. Now, given the sharp edges of the place, it's amazing to me that someone as sensitive and thoughtful as Judith manages to function, let alone thrive, at Q. But she does, and so do her students. This is a place where truth, beauty, trust, tenderness, vulnerability, color, sensitivity, choice, all the intangible qualities humans need to thrive are virtually non existent. But in her funky little classroom, she makes these things available to her students through the often arduous journey of becoming a writer. The price, though, is the hard work that Judith demands. Those that hang in have an opportunity to tap into the perpetual motion learning machine of art making. In the process, they become creators with a chance to own a bit more of their own unique story, an act of personal agency that is a precious thing on the inside. I pick up the phone. Hey, Jim, what's up? Judith has an idea I think you might find interesting. I'll put her on. Hey, Judith, what's up?
1: Hey, I've been thinking, what if we make some art to support what we do here teaching artists?
0: Okay, say more.
1: Well, this is more than just a side gig for them, for us. I mean, we're coming here hoping to do some good, right?
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: But... Once we pass through those iron gates into this upside-down world, it can be really disorienting.
0: I sure can't argue with that.
1: Yeah, and to simplify things, some of them just go into black-and-white mode. You know, where the artists and the art students become the good guys and the prison staff who work here, the enemy. The ones that stick around learn better, but sometimes the hard way.
0: Okay, so what's the punchline here?
1: What do you want to do? Well, I want to use a made-up prison to tell a real story of what we do. I wanna fill it with inside and outside artists, all the conundrums, all the contradictions, all the heartaches and the little victories we dance with every day.
0: Wow, okay, what is this, a play or a musical?
1: Nope, I'm thinking of writing a novella. North Coast Correctional Facility, a novella, introduction. Prison is a world, a world not only of despair and loneliness, violence and cruelty, but also a world of complex moments. A cell block at 4 p.m. during afternoon count, the Donahue show on almost every TV, a man in green leading a handcuffed man in blue from a lockup unit to a classification hearing, the two men joking about Monday night's football game, a woman serving life sentence for murder, pouring milk from her lunch into a shallow dish for one of the homeless cats wandering around the grounds. This novel event attempts to give some sense of the world we are entering. It does so by moving from the experience of one character to the experiences of another. For prison is a world where reality is constantly shifting. Precisely the same event is likely to be described in quite different terms by an inmate viewing the action an officer, an administrator, by a visiting artist behind the walls for the first time. As artists, we're trained to know about perspective, point of view, about how the whole is composed of individual parts.
0: October 1989, U.S. Interstate 80. I'm heading west out of Sacdo. The big green and white sign overhead shouts, San Francisco, 75 miles. 35 minutes later, the tiny sign for the California Medical Facility flashes by a few hundred yards before I break hard and hit the exit. never fails. Blink, and you miss it. Those few who do notice that sign probably think it's just a hospital, but it's not. It's prison. CMF, as we call it, opened its gates in 1954 as a part of a post-World War II prison reform effort initiated by then-Governor Earl Warren. Back then, the idea of prisoner rehabilitation was the newest big thing in correction circles, particularly in California. CMF's original mission was providing long-term care for the most acute physical and mental health cases in the system. But that was then. A few years ago, the word rehabilitation was actually stricken from the state's penal code. Today, CMF is pretty far along in its transition from full-service hospital to a typical lock-and-feed institution with a larger-than-normal infirmary. As I turn into the institution's parking lot, I catch sight of Judith on her way to the front entrance lugging a big three-ring binder. Over the past few months, she's been filling that binder with transcripts of interviews with San Quentin staff, prisoners, and AIC artists. Those conversations and the stories they hold will provide the foundation for the novella. But given its level four status and the presence of California's condemned Roe, No one could argue that San Quentin is a generic prison if there ever was such a thing. We both agreed if the novella's fictional North Coast Correctional Facility is going to translate beyond Q, her research would need to broaden, and CMF seemed like a good place to start. We're met at the front of the institution by artist facilitator Jerry Meek and community resources manager Joe Henry. Now, Jerry's been there since AIC's early days, and he runs a great program and has a really wonderful relationship with the CRM, who is his on-site supervisor. Based on our experience at San Quentin, Judith and I agreed that the quality of Jerry and Joe's collaboration was a really important story to tell, and that's why we're here. Judith's approach to crafting the fictional North Coast Correctional Facility story is, well, quintessential Judith. As a colleague and a teacher, she is both nurturing and tough. She's that way with herself, too, with a strong emphasis on the tough part. To her, writing well means pushing, digging, questioning assumptions, challenging conventional wisdom, and paying attention to detail. That said, this novella poses some really unique challenges. Most of Judith's writing has been works of art, poems, you know, stories crafted painstakingly in her unique voice, expressing what she wants to say freely as an artist. Compared to this, our novella is the writing equivalent of a straitjacket defined principally by the fact that she'll be creating an official document for the most paranoid and restrictive bureaucracy in the state. But, of course, Judith loves the challenge of testing herself in uncharted territories. As an artist, she also understands she has to be true to her own well-honed creative processes. This means immersing herself in the subject matter and opening up to the widest range of possible characters, stories, and plot lines. As challenging as the project is, she knows she can't begin by obsessing on inherent restrictions. She also knows that she cannot convey the fractured logic of the prison planet from a singular perspective. Each of her central characters is going to have to speak for themselves, interpreting each scene from their own perspective. Once we pass through security and settle into Jerry's little office, I just sit back and watch Judith do her thing. She's a natural at this, probably because she really wants to know, how does all this work or not? Particularly in the uncharted territory that is being negotiated by Jerry the artist and Joe the career corrections guy who are somehow working together to build an art program in an institution in what is fast becoming the largest prison system in the world. I can see that Judith is a no-pressure interviewer. She's just after stories, and these guys are more than obliging. After an hour or so telling tales, she has everything she needs. After our CMF visit, Judith's research takes her to three more institutions. The innocuously named California Training Facility, CTF, is a Level 3 facility plopped in the middle of a lettuce field in the San Joaquin Valley. And because it houses a large number of gang members and has a long history of violence, CTF is also known as the Gladiator School. The second is a Level 2 facility nestled in the Sierra foothills, appropriately named the Sierra Conservation Center. The third is the state's only women's prison, California Institution for Women, near Ontario in the South. By December, Judith has settled on a cast of characters whose lives will be bound up in the North Coast story. In addition to artist facilitator Al Greer and CRM Dolores Mendoza, the institution's writing program features prominently with veteran instructor Susan Robertson and a visiting poet named Varela. Although they differ in many ways, Susan is quite obviously Judith's North Coast counterpart. Varela, Susan's good friend and poetic partner, brings an unvarnished outsider's perspective to the story. The highest-ranking administrator is Dolores Mendoza's boss, Associate Warden Sam Randall, who, despite a couple of decades climbing through the ranks, approaches his job with brains and a heart. Correctional officer Betsy Chin follows suit from her own position as one of a small number of women COs trying to make a decent living in one of the most testosterone-saturated workplaces on the planet. Naturally, there are a number of prisoners with central roles. These include two talented and outspoken prison writers who figure prominently in one of the novella's most intense episodes. Mitch Reiser is a brilliant poet and painter whose devotion to the writing program goes far beyond his love of writing. Another writer, Timothy Augustus, is an uncompromising soul who very much keeps his own counsel. As one of over 32,000 African Americans incarcerated by the state, Timothy understands that the distance you maintain between what you know and what you say can mean a lot inside.
1: North Coast Correctional Facility Writing Program Classroom.
3: Mitch was a subtle one. Although Timothy had to laugh and laugh to himself at how the observant poet Susan seemed so oblivious to what to him was so obvious. Or not exactly oblivious, clearly uncomfortable. Timothy could see that Mitch was interpreting the way Susan tugged her hair, looked away from his gaze as a statement that some part of her wanted him to. Mitch was reading Susan's vulnerability, her inability to draw a firm line as a sign that eventually she might be his. Eventually. That's what Susan didn't quite get. Timothy knew that Mitch had all the time in the world. He was a lifer. He wasn't going anywhere. He could approach her with his love poem watch her get to a point of maximum confusion, then pull back, throw out something a guest artist said two months ago. Talk about a poem Susan once read, to the way Tall Tony recited when they made the videotape. That slow buildup of shared details was bound to make Susan feel safe. December
0: 1989 san quentin state prison san quentin is our biggest program and nearby so i get down there a lot hitting the road at 5 30 a.m beats the traffic and gets me across the richmond san rafael bridge in plenty of time for my eight o'clock meet up with jim and judith after i park i grab my briefcase and head for the single wide trailer that serves as the first checkpoint for entrance into the facility CO on duty passes me through with a flash of my CDC ID. Every time I come here, the incongruity of the bayside bump of land known as Point San Quentin truly overwhelms me. On my left, viewing gulls rise up against the cloudless blue sky stretching above a 14-mile expanse of the San Francisco Bay and the city's iconic skyline. On my right, a mortared castle right out of Macbeth looms above me, just absent of moats and moving trees. As I approach the twin castle towers that frame the institution's main entrance, a green cluster of 1st watch COs spill out on their way to the staff parking lot. The last one out nods and holds the heavy iron door for me. It's a cliche, but it really is like passing through the portals of hell. Inside, day fades to gray, the bay sounds are smothered by the hard metal clicks and crashes of the Sallyport gates, echoing in the entryway's vaulted stone passageway. If anyone needs a reminder of where they are, this medieval tableau should leave no doubts. Across Kew's central courtyard, the square squat education building is dwarfed by the five-story housing units on either side. As I enter the door of the AIC office, I'm reminded of how precious space is in here. Jim's basement lair is more like a closet than a real office, more so because it also functions as the AIC storage locker. Sitting among boxes of oil paint and art paper, Jim and Judith are engaged in an animated conversation. They each smile in my direction without breaking the rhythm of their back and forth.
1: It's a work of fiction, but it has to be grounded in stories that are true. No fabrication and no cutting corners. That's where the lesson gets lost. Everybody here knows what went down.
0: I hadn't been tracking the conversation at first, but now I understand. Judith is talking about how inside, seemingly incongruous things can become a big problem in a hurry. Like the need to be friendly, but... Not friends.
1: It's one of the most important and least understood lessons our people need to learn. It has to be in the novella. And I know this story better than anyone.
0: Now I know what she wants to do, where she wants to take the novella. And once again, I'm really struck by her courage.
1: North Coast Correctional Facility, Unit 3, Third Tier.
4: NCCF is on indefinite lockdown following an inmate stabbing. Because of this, writing instructor Susan Robertson is working with her students through the bars of their cells. She approaches Mitch Reiser's cell.
0: Hello, Susan. Come in this way.
4: Mitch Reiser's voice broke into Susan's thoughts on violence and its effect on the mind and soul. She walked past a few cells to where Mitch was housed are you psychic or what how did you know it was me susan asked always on her guard with mitch she was never able to be herself with mitch around and mitch was always around there were so many silent ways in which mitch made sure he was there always there
0: i am psychic where you're concerned but this time I've got to give credit where credit is due.
4: Mitch pointed to the small mirror that he could adjust to give him a reflection of just what was coming along the walkway. Susan stepped back and looked at the other cells and saw that many such mirrors were now focused on her. She shook her head. I'm a trained observer, but I'm not seeing anything well today.
0: You may not be seeing well, but you sure are looking good.
4: Susan smiled. Cute. Corny, but cute. This parrying with Mitch was easy, but dangerous. If she wasn't careful, he'd pick up whatever she said and run with it as far as he could. Susan, just
0: come a little closer, will you?
4: I can hear you fine. But I just want to smell your perfume. I don't wear perfume, she said, then thought, shit, he's trapped me. I've got to get out of this dialogue without one more personal exchange. Then why do you always smell so sweet? Mitch, what poems are you going to read at the banquet? Uh, I don't want to talk about poems. That's what I'm here for. Does your husband send you flowers? Mitch? I'm gonna send you
0: flowers. You'll see. Sometime you'll be home alone. Night will be coming on. Maybe you'll be taking a bath or rubbing oil all over your naked skin, and they'll be there, these surprise flowers. And you'll know <laughs> they're from me.
4: Okay, Mitch, that's it. Never had the promise of flowers sounded so like a threat. I'm just gonna
0: love you
4: forever, Susan. Mitch whispered towards Susan's departing back. Although she tried not to hear, she heard... I've got all the time in the
0: world, Susan, and I'm going to take as long as I need to convince you. And I'll convince you that
4: you'll see. A bird had flown in through the open transom and was singing in the block. Susan focused on this bird. Its song made her hear the weighted silence of the gray sky outside, the ocean water, She listened to these silent sounds that rolled under her quickly beating heart, under all the noise in the block. She wanted to leave Unit 2, run back to the office and talk to Al about Mitch. But she decided to see the rest of her students first, and she walked down the tier as steady as she could.
0: Judith's act of courage is, of course, her willingness to share a fictionalized version of a similar but all-too-real struggle she had with one of her students. Like Mitch, this poet, a lifer with two rape-murder convictions, was a persistent edge-pusher whose obsession with Judith became more and more tenacious over time. The line was crossed when a staff member overheard him describing in detail his plans for Judith to fellow prisoners. This was a terrifying situation for Judith, and because of the program, other women at Q, the rules, and a dozen other reasons, both paranoid and real, the incident could not be written off. Her conflict about reporting it up the chain of command only added to her distress. Her compassion in telling this difficult story in the novella is a testament to the enormous sense of responsibility she carried for each of her students. Beyond the episode with Mitch, the North Coast story unfolds with other unsettling twists and turns, all of which are based on true events chronicled in Judith's research. In addition to the fatal stabbing and subsequent lockdown, there's a discovered tryst between a yoga teacher and a prisoner, a crippling state budget freeze, and most devastatingly for the arts program's teachers, students, and their families, the cancellation of the first-ever arts program banquet, which had been months in the making. Despite the intensity of this string of events, Judas' narrative is not overly dramatic, and pointedly so. This is because one of the most incongruent characteristics of prison life is the plodding drumbeat of hard-to-imagine juxtapositions. Boredom and fear. Cacophony and silence. Bad news and no news. If the joint could talk, it would surely be shouting, (laughs) You think you caught us at a bad time? Nah, this is normal. You think this is crazy? (laughs) Wait till next week. As daunting as it might seem, Judith understands that her principal job here is as a translator, making some sense of a place where the Queen of Hearts and the Mad Hatter would feel quite comfortably at home, a place where seemingly simple questions about the right thing to do are answered with alternating layers of clarity and quicksand, a place where the signs and signals we all depend on to find our way are offered up in a yes-but-no fog line, (laughs) an oscillating current that is both confounding and oddly thrilling. Who else but an artist could render this world in a way that both attracts new creative colleagues and discourages the slackers? Her task is to convey the elusive truth of this hazy netherworld without scaring away the potential pathfinders.
4: North Coast Correctional Facility, Susan Robertson's classroom. Truth. Everyone in this place was always so sure of his opinion. From Sam Randall, to Dolores Mendoza, to Roger Watson, to Timothy Augustus, Susan moved through NCCF from one whole truth to the next, and in the moving, everyone's truth became part of some larger truth. It was this truth she herself was most interested in. Although it was so large, she couldn't see it, didn't understand its shape. She felt she could never know prison, never understand harm to others, or feelings of retribution, or society's inequalities, or spiritual evil, or human greed, or moral laziness, or being a good soldier without getting some glimpse of this larger picture into which it all fit. She felt Timothy Augustus' observations about dominant white society were accurate, but they left out Sam Randall's ideas about individual responsibility. She felt Sam Randall's ideas about individual responsibilities were valid, but they left out tall Tony's knowledge of how the system set things up so that the individual hardly had a chance. She felt tall Tony's knowledge was precise, but it left out Dolores Mendoza's experience of becoming part of the system in order to break out of a past that wanted to limit her and her people. She felt Dolores Mendoza's experience had much to teach, but it left out Woody sitting in his cell, focusing not on culture, but on the clear strain of a voice that could only be heard when all was quiet a voice that asked him to be a channel for its words. There was a larger picture, she was sure of it, but maybe she'd never see it whole. Maybe she'd always be able only to listen to each person's story, each person's way of perceiving the world.
0: There's no doubt that Susan Robertson's yearning for some kind of whole truth nags at Judith too. But, of course, Judith does have access to the kind of truth that most people living and working in prison never encounter. These are the true things that emerge every time she sits down with her students, shuts her eyes to the fluorescent glare, and listens to them read. These are the profound things that jump out at her every time she looks in on the painters and the R&B band and even the jugglers, every day, making their depleted world anew. And these are the astonishing things she hears over and over when one of her fellow teachers shares a story about what happens when an individual soul is reacquainted with the power of the imagination.
1: North Coast Correctional Facility Music Room.
2: You all know Gordon the guitar teacher. Well, he told us all a story tonight that's kind of been staying on my mind, TJ said. He said that when he first taught in prison, it was down south, and he was teaching a beginning guitar workshop. All these dudes hardly knew the fingerboard from the sound hole. Then, this one brother walks in, picks up a box, and starts playing righteous progressions, really fancy work. Gordon listens a while and then approaches the man, says, your playing is mighty fine, but this is a beginning guitar class. The man says, I am a beginner. This is the first time I ever picked up a box. But that's impossible. You're playing chords and progressions. Look, this is the first time I ever picked up a box. The man repeated. Thing is, I was locked up at Central State. I was in the hole for 10 years. No guitar, no nothing. Then I got me a chord book and made myself a keyboard out of cardboard and just went through the book. Done with that one, I found myself another. Did that the whole time I was down, but this is the first time I'm hearing how it really sounds. Postscript, in early 1990,
0: Eight boxes, each containing 20 copies of Judith Tannenbaum's A Manual for Artists Working in Prison, are delivered to my Arts and Corrections office in Sacramento. The second page imprint reads, Published by Arts and Corrections, Printed by the Prison Industry Authority, or PIA. The PIA printing plant is one of dozens of prison industries operated by the California Department of Corrections, using prison labor, earning less than 75 cents an hour. Given the thousands of prisoners involved in arts and corrections, it's quite possible that some of them also took part in the manual's printing. By spring, all but a few copies of the manual have been disseminated to California's now 18 prisons, where they're put to use orienting newly hatched artist fish swimming in from the outside. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. Special thanks to our cast on this show who are Amba Johnson as Judith Tannenbaum, Kathy Bentley as Susan Robertson, Brian Lee as Timothy Augustus, Alicia Imani as Kathy Johnson, and Micah Washington as the guitar student. Thanks also to our stalwart regulars, particularly Judy Munson, who has produced the extraordinary soundscape for this episode. Also, our text editing by Andre Nebe, our effects from freesound.org, and our eternal inspiration, which rises up from the ever-present spirit of OOK 235. So, until next time, stay well, do good, and spread the good word.